the sort of evolution of the CFO from just like the numbers person to a strategic advisor has been an important one and has been very impactful to companies as they think about optimizing how they spend their capital. And the pairing of those two things is really powerful. Hello and welcome to The Invisible Vault. This episode features an interview between Ann Dennison, EVP and CFO of NASDAQ, and Bob Stark, Head of Global Market Strategy at Kariba. Anne has more than 20 years of experience in corporate finance and financial reporting and analysis. At NASDAQ, she's responsible for accounting, FP&A, budgeting, planning, and procurement. Prior to joining NASDAQ in 2015, Anne was a Managing Director and Head of Financial Reporting at Goldman Sachs. On this episode, Anne discusses market resiliency, cutting-edge topics like ESG and the digital asset space, and the transformation of the CFO from a numbers person to a strategic advisor. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. The Invisible Vault is powered by the team at Kariba, the global leader in cloud treasury and finance solutions, empowering CFOs and their teams to transform how they activate liquidity as a dynamic, real-time vehicle for growth and value creation. To learn more, visit kariba.com. So please enjoy this interview between Ann Dennison, EVP and CFO of NASDAQ, and your host, Bob Stark. Welcome to the Invisible Vault. I'm Bob Stark, Global Head of Market Strategy at Kariba, and today we're going to have a great podcast. Anne, welcome to our podcast. It's great to have you. How's your day going? I'm good, Bob. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I think we're going to have a little bit of fun with these questions, but I want to start with the very beginning. You're the CFO of NASDAQ. How did you get into finance in the first place? I started out like a traditional accounting route. So I went to the you know big six at the time. Now it's big four. And I spent a couple of years there. I spent most of my career, Bob, at Goldman, about 19 years there. And I sort of hit a pivotal point in my career where I needed to make a decision whether I was going to stay there and stay on the track that I was on or really try something different and push myself out of my comfort zone. And I had a really, really distinct thing that I wanted to try. And NASDAQ wasn't that. But I ended up meeting this entrepreneurial team at NASDAQ as I interviewed, which I thought I was doing for practice. But it turns out, you know, it was probably my best career move that I could have made for for a number of reasons. But one, because it really just pushed me to learn think differently, use the skills that I developed over my accounting and you know career at Goldman to really do things differently and, and think out of the box. That's a nice story, actually. I almost want to say it's a non-traditional path to becoming a CFO, but I like the way you phrased that you were looking for that new challenge. And there's always this push and pull in finance of, have I done enough in this particular area? Have I spent too much time or not enough time in treasury or accounting, etc.? But I think that's an interesting addition. I should say I didn't come straight into the CFO role coming into NASDAQ. So I joined NASDAQ in October of 2015 in the controller spot. And so I was lucky enough to have a sponsor and mentor in the CFO uh, that I worked for the past five years to really help me learn and grow and get ready for the CFO position. So I am newly appointed. I'm looking at the date. Uh, I was appointed March 1st of this year. And so... um, brand new CFO, but not brand new to NASDAQ. I think that's a great pathway to do it. You've got five years to learn. 
Yeah, exactly. And work with an amazing leadership team. So it's been a really great journey. And I feel I like I've grown a ton in five years. Yeah. And I'm sure grown a ton since March 1st as well, if I dare say. Yeah. yeah. It's a fire hose, but I'm learning. I have a lot more to learn, let's just say. So tell me a little bit about what a CFO at NASDAQ, like what is that like and how is it different compared to what you saw in the previous five years? I don't know how different it actually is. I mean, obviously there's more responsibility that comes with the CFO role and a seat at the, you know, executive leadership table um, and a chance, you know, to work more closely with our CEO, Dina Friedman at NASDAQ, who is an inspiration to me. So there's differences there. The broadening of responsibility is really around the different functions in finance that were not part of my old role. But I, I will say my old role prepared me well. It was a big portion of the finance team, and I got the opportunity to work as part of running the finance planning and um, analysis team in my old role, working closely with the CFO, our CEO, and the board around our strategic initiatives over the past five years. So I feel really well positioned as I stepped into the CFO role, I should say. But I've got you know things to learn on functions that I hadn't touched before. And one of the things in the CFO world that's really important is telling your story to investors. And as an accountant by trade, I'll say, and, and hopefully this doesn't prove true in the podcast, but as an accountant by trade, I say, I was giving you the answer just as you asked the question before coming into the CFO role. Now I need to be able to tell a story. And that's a skill set and a muscle that I'm working on building. And I'm looking forward to the journey on that. Yeah, it's actually an interesting progression, as you say. It's building a story versus just knowing the story, but really being focused on delivering the answer previously. I like the way you phrased that. One further question before we get into our next segment, and it's really just a curiosity because most of the CFOs I talk to, not all of them are part of recognized names uh, such as NASDAQ. But as a CFO of an organization that's well-known and regarded, does that change um, significantly compared to maybe if you were part of a lesser-known organization? Like, does that add pressure being part of a name brand like this? Well, I certainly feel pressure. When I think about the pressure that I feel, the pressure that I feel is to succeed and to help Nasdaq continue to accelerate um, its strategic journey and to provide the right sort of partnership to leadership team and, and obviously to Adina. I don't have a reference point for working in a smaller brand company since I spent most of my career working for bigger brands. I'm just imagining that the pressure to succeed and to make a difference is brand agnostic, but those are just my thoughts. Yeah, I think those are, those are good thoughts. And I think your experience is, is well taken simply because you've worked for very impressive names all the way along. So... Congratulations on that. Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about our first segment. We call it Cash Crossroads on the Invisible Vault podcast. And the reason why we talk about that is because getting into some specific areas of the CFO's remit, such as cash, liquidity, etc. So if we think back, and this obviously touches on your role as a controller before you progress to CFO, what did you find that was challenging from a cash liquidity standpoint at the onset of the pandemic, looking back to March of last year? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. We're seeing sort of some of the post-pandemic world. We're seeing some of the impact of this. So at the start of the pandemic, there was just a ton of uncertainty, right? So from a 
cash and liquidity perspective, when you've got a lot of uncertainty in front of you, you want to be a little bit more conservative on what you're doing with your capital. And so I think what we saw, and I'm making a generalization here more broadly across many companies, was the preservation of cash, making sure they had access to cash, and then preserving it. So maybe not doing um, as many buybacks on their stock or maybe not increasing their dividend as they otherwise you know, would have during that sort of time period, especially at the beginning of the pandemic. Talking about companies that weren't suffering on the service side, that weren't suffering from cash flow problems because of the pandemic. And so now I think what we're seeing is on the post-pandemic side, expansion on the stock buybacks, maybe a little bit more aggressiveness on increasing dividend because looking back to last year, maybe you could have done more, but there was so much uncertainty that you were a little bit more conservative in those decisions. So I think the pandemic, at least from a liquidity perspective, looked very different than some previous crises that we've been through, specifically the financial crisis. But that uncertainty at the beginning made people act conservatively. Yeah, we definitely saw a a lot of that. It it seemed different, the same but different than what we observed in 2008, because it just seemed like it was so much more impactful across other aspects of commerce than just specific to financial markets. And it created a lot of uncertainty. As you say, there's certain industries that were affected more than others. One thing that has been very interesting, and this is specific to obviously the business that NASDAQ is in, is that the markets have been fairly resilient, maybe with the short-term exception back in March of last year, but otherwise they've done very well. In fact, there's been heightened valuations and a lot of uh, expectation for a lot of different types of organizations, tech sector certainly being one of them, to go IPO. Have you seen this increase in uh, interest in going public for many organizations as a catalyst for your business? And does it flow through to the CFO? I realize there's a lot of parts to that question. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's been a really interesting and exciting you know, year from a market's perspective. And so when I think about market resiliency, what we do is provide a platform on the cash equity side and cash options in the U.S. for trading. And so when there's a lot of activity, if our markets are not resilient, then it could create broader issues for the entire ecosystem. And so we we think a lot about, you know, resiliency and making sure that we can handle that. And the level of activity that we saw during the very volatile time in March of 2020 created an incredible amount of, you know, stress on the system. But we're really proud of how resilient our systems were. And we've been adding capacity on the back end to make sure that as the retail trading continues to remain in the market, that we can continue to handle the activity in the market and provide the services that our clients are looking for. So we saw, you know, that from a market's perspective and lots of volatility, you know, and and an interesting thing just to note, usually we see market volatility is a sort of really pretty well correlated with the activity that we have in our, our trading business. What we're seeing now is with all the retail in the market, that the volatility levels have fallen back from those high levels we saw early on in the pandemic, but the market activity is still very high. And so it'll be interesting to see as we move on how much of that is structural. And we've seen some of it come down in the cash equities market, but the options market is still um, pretty busy. And so it'll be interesting to see you know, how much retail participation stays in the market as we move forward in the post-pandemic world. I think on the IPO side, I mean, the IPOs, it's been really just an incredible 
journey and a very busy one for what we call it our listings team. And that's a, a global team. We have our U.S. listings and a Nordic listings team. And I'm going to get the stats exactly wrong, but you know we had more IPOs in the first quarter of this year than we forecast for a normal year all in, right? So really a ton of activity with a lot of companies you know, wanting to come to the market and wanting access to those really positive market conditions currently. And it's not just the SPACs. Everybody's talking about the SPACs. We've seen quite a lot of SPACs, but we've had a lot of operating companies come to the market and really coming to NASDAQ looking for access uh, to the market in the deepest equity market liquidity pool in the U.S. So pretty cool. I just would love to talk about the fact that like pre-pandemic, nothing was done remote on the IPO side. But when you think about what's happened since last March, where we've had an enormous number of IPOs and companies coming to market in different ways, a lot of those, especially early on, couldn't be done in the traditional way where we bring everyone to the market site. They're on the tower, they ring the bell, and there's a whole wonderful process around that. So what we've had to do in this world is really find ways to do that in a digital way. And so now we have the ability to do remote bell ceremonies, remote roadshows with the bankers and the companies, which we'll see. There's a lot of efficiency in doing those things, and there's still a level of excitement. So It'll be interesting seeing, to see it as we move forward what the new world looks like and what the, the the hybrid balance between those two things is. That actually raises a really interesting question about what processes or what ways of doing things stay the same post-pandemic where you realize, oh, wait a second, this was very efficient. We might want to keep doing this. So maybe not the remote bell ringing, because I'm sure there's a lot of interest for those that are going public for the first time to be part of that. They, they feel like that's something that's a great part of the journey. But I'm sure there's other aspects, both within your operational team, as well as other aspects of NASDAQ that you think, post-pandemic, this is the way we should do things now. Yeah, and I, I think it's there's still a lot of unknown in terms of what, you know, what exactly things are going to look like as we get back to more normal. I think on the IPO side, one real efficiency we saw, I mentioned, is you know this shifting of the roadshow to remote. I don't know if that's going to stick exactly, but I think it'll give some optionality as we move forward into the new normal. And, and I think there'll be a lot of options to consider and things to think about to provide services to our clients. So we're excited about that. I think everybody's talking about this now, and we're talking about it every day, which is, what does the future of work look like? So we proved pretty well that we could operate in a remote environment, and there were certain people across the company, but it was a very small set that needed to come in. But most of the company didn't need to be in person, and I think if we asked ourselves that question sort of January of last year, can we go fully remote? and not create any operational impacts. I think the answer to that would have been a full stop no. Now we know the answer is yes. And so as we think about how to provide the employees the flexibility that they want, because we're hearing that, preserve our culture and really you know, set ourselves up for success, there's a lot of questions that we're asking ourselves and figuring out what does that really mean and what do we use our offices for in the future. Yeah, it's a great challenge. And I've seen a lot of different statistics suggesting that many CFOs, usually in the range of two-thirds, are suggesting that there's not what they initially want, but what they expect is at least some element of hybrid work. 
And so, yeah, trying to figure out what does that actually look like? What does it mean? What kind of controls do I have in the office and out of the office, given that I might be doing both in a given work week? Yeah, I agree. Um, And and I think this will morph over time. I think, one, there's some friction for for folks to come back in because, and I I share that, I've been back in the office. I've been going back in a couple days a week, two to three days a week for a couple of months now mainly because we've got this great new office that I love to be in. And it's now an easier commute for me. I can walk from Grand Central Station here in, in New York. But there's a friction to doing it because we're creatures of habit. We've been sitting in our chairs in our you know basements or home offices or whatever for a long time. And it's just easier not to do it. What we're trying to do is encourage people in a positive way, not a force right now to come back in and just see it, just feel it like, be with your colleagues and, and then make a decision whether you really want to stay home. So we're asking for a little bit of that. And I do expect it to look different. And I think we'll just continue to adapt and change and understand what the workforce really wants and how to mesh that with what we need from a company perspective to be successful. You're, you're thinking the right way, uh, for sure. Uh, let me zero in on one thing that you said a little bit earlier. It sounds like you were saying business is pretty good. There's a lot of interest in public organizations. It blew out your forecasts. I'm kind of reading into what your answer was there. What do you have to do differently when business is so good above projection? Like, How does that flow through to the finance teams? We spend an awful lot of time budgeting and looking out in our strategic plan for the next three to five years. And we operate in an environment or in businesses that some are easier to predict and some are harder to predict because there are a lot of beta forces, market-driven forces. And so we spend a lot of time looking at where we're performing versus our budget. But most importantly, when I think about my job as a CFO and how can I be strategically impactful, what comes top of mind is capital allocation. And so when your business you know, is doing well, we want to invest for future growth. And so figuring out how to put whatever capital that we had in excess of what we are expecting to use in the most powerful way to drive value for shareholders is the ultimate objective. I mean, there's lots of steps in between. But I think there are many companies that face, you know, the opposite problem. And and I like to think back because it's always a good reminder. And I think it's something we're really focused on using the right tools to sort of make sure that we, we can manage this. When we started the, the pandemic, um, n- nobody knew what the markets were going to look like. Nobody knew, you know, the IPO stopped. There were nothing happening. And so we didn't have a clear view at that time as to what things were going to look like in the future. And so one of the things that we spent an awful lot of time doing is here's our forecast, but what are the different scenarios that could happen? And then how are we going to manage through that? If it's on the downside cases, obviously you could be looking at tightening and making sure that position from a liquidity perspective. And on the upside, those are a little bit easier to uh, figure out. I love to figure out how to spend money. I mean, I'll talk about just on my personal side, I don't you know, mean for NASDAQ, but I also love to think about the, the possibilities at NASDAQ for what our investment can do to help us grow and accelerate our strategic vision. I like how you phrase that because you're right. There's some basic forecasting and scenarios and being able to pivot and understand what this looks like versus that looks like that are consistent with whether you're a growing organization or whether you're one that potentially faces some challenges. It's the same mechanics that you have to be able to do well. So that was very well said. 
It actually is a nice segue into our next segment around the playbook, which is where we talk a little bit more about strategy. And you've actually given us some great insight into strategy and how you think. Uh, let me ask you this from a risk standpoint. Um, what's your view on risk management? I know it can be defined many different ways. What are your thoughts on what risk management means in your role as CFO? So risk is something important that we need to manage. And so maybe that's like the the one sentence answer. Um, I also have this perspective that perfection is kind of the enemy here. You're never going to eliminate risk completely across the organization. And, and you want to make the right level of investment to cover the risks appropriately. And whether those are operational or business risks, I mean, we spend an awful lot of time making sure that we understand our top risks and thinking about how we mitigate them. And so I like to think about it specifically from a finance perspective. What are our areas of focus? What are our particular vulnerabilities? And really making sure that we're focused on them so that we don't get surprised by something that was just off the radar screen. And then if I put my CFO hat on for the company, um, a muscle that we're trying to make big or build is looking at everything through you know, a risk-reward profile, ROIC and then risk-reward. So we can make investments that can make big returns, but how much risk is associated with those investments and how do we frame them the right way to, you know, to stack them up against one another because we do, you know, have constraints around how much capital we can invest. And so I think risk is pretty complicated, but un- simply you're taking it every day and you need to manage it. And I think it, the fact that you speak about acting decisively and the implication I heard through that is you can paralyze yourself through too much analysis. At some point you have to manage these risks. And that's a big lesson for a lot of organizations. I think there's many out there that could learn from the way you phrase that. We we talk a lot about perfection being the enemy because you you can paralyze yourself, but incremental improvement all the time is what I strive for within the finance organization. And I think more broadly um, across the corporation, we're not trying to get it to perfection from day one, but make it better every day. Well, that almost makes me have to ask the question about technology, just because that's an area where perfection is also a challenge (laughs) to get everything perfect. What sort of technologies do you find are especially useful or what you rely on the most as a CFO? I think there's just um, so many different technologies that help us understand our story, manage our risks, and tell our story. I think if I was going to pick a few to highlight, I'd say on the strategic planning side, so the tools that we use to forecast both in a short term and from a long range perspective are some of the tools that we spend a lot of time focused on. That includes the P&L and our cash flow because it's important to understand what the landscape looks um, over the long term so we can balance the decisions that we need to make. I think there's some day-to-day tools that we use from ERP, our payments tools where we understand the cash conversion cycle. We use financial reporting tools that help us tell the story, but also sort of packaging things in a way that is easy to look at. Thank you for that answer, and I think it's an amazing insight on the technology side. It's always fascinating, as you say, even if it is, it could be a podcast in itself. I appreciate the the short version of that. I think it's great for everyone. Let's talk about data. 
Now, you can use technology for data in a variety of ways, and maybe that's part of your answer, but what does being data-driven mean to you? Sure. I think data's been the buzzword for a while now, and you know, I do, with every part of my being, believe we need to make dis- data-driven decisions all the time. It's really easy to sort of talk qualitatively about things and make decisions and miss some important things, especially, you know, with the finance lens on. And so I tried, you know, sort of coming into the organization to really find where I can make a difference. And when I think about finance sitting on a ton of data at the corporate level, there's really a lot of power in that. And so how can we harness that power to help, you know, provide information to the business, businesses, I should say, to make, you know, the best possible decisions, whether it's organic investment or inorganic investment. But maybe I could share one of the the things we've been very focused on. And I don't think this is probably a different story for many organizations, which is many organizations grow through acquisition and you have all this data sitting in different places coming in through different entry points. And sometimes if you can't harness that data, it's, it's very hard to to optimize your, your ability to cross-sell your products, that sort of thing. And so one of the things that we did over the past few years is develop a way to do that. It's really hard to put everything into one system. We recognize that was nearly impossible. But we've been working you know, really closely with the technology team and we've developed a solution to be able to take all of our customer data across all four of our business segments and hundreds and hundreds of products and be able to, to put that into a language that came together so we could look at one customer across the entire organization. And there's still more to do, but the sales teams are starting to use that in the cross-sell process and really starting to leverage that in, in decision-making. And it's a journey but I feel really good about the steps we've taken so far to really drive some real value for the business. Yeah, would it be fair to say that you would call that a data program? Or what's the terminology you use internally? We've been talking about names and naming ourselves for a while. So I created this, this organization within finance called the Finance Advisory Office. And they're responsible for the cross-functional and cross-company initiatives. And so within that, we've got recently named the data management organization, which is handling this. That may change. We try to make, it started off being named C3PO, customer third-party organization. And our company and our our CEO is a big Star Wars fan. And so we named it that and everybody calls it that, but we're going to name it something different as it expands and turns into, you know, something bigger than just customer data. Well, as a Star Wars fan, I love that name <laughs> and the fact that you actually made it meaningful <laughs> in terms of breaking out into the long form. I'm very impressed. I'm sad to see that may not be the permanent Well, name. everybody will always call it that in some way. We'll try to keep it, but... <laughs> no, that sounds fun. Do you find that artificial intelligence and machine learning, which obviously is meant to harness data, does that play a role yet? Or are you hopeful that AI will be able to help the finance team? Yeah, for sure. Across the organization, we're using artificial intelligence and machine learning in many of the products that we sell. And so we're really excited about and recognize that that's a real enabler for us as we offer our technology products across the globe. And, and, you know, especially in our anti-fin crime business where being able to use artificial intelligence and machine learning um, to drive more power to those solutions is really important. So I think there's the commercial aspect and and that's broad and the opportunities are vast. But also we've used it. I talked about C3PO, which is what we call 
the original customer uh, data initiative, and we used machine learning as part of that initiative. Part of it, you can think about it as, I won't name names, but we have one company that we're working with across many different parts of the organization, and maybe there's, and I'm not exaggerating, a thousand versions of that company sitting in names, the way that it addresses whatever. And so we were able to use components of AI and machine learning. I'm not sure if those are just completely interchangeable, but we sort of set some parameters that then we could turn over to sort of workflow tools and using machine learning. We, we wouldn't have to go manually in and put all those thousand names together to figure out what that one customer was. And so that's just one example. I think we're using it as we roll out and digitize and use RPA and workflow tools. We're using that in our you know, optimization initiatives as well on the corporate side. It's great use cases that you mentioned. I think most people are always trying to figure out new ways to harness these sort of extreme levels of automation that are offered by RPA and machine learning, et cetera. So that's great that you have that. Last question in this segment, in terms of automation, because you've used that word a couple of times, what is automation for you? Like, is it uh, an enabler, a means to an end, or is it an objective in itself? I think sometimes people think that technology is a solution to your problem. And so when you ask the question in the way that you did, you know, using the word automation, if I step back, I think of automation as the combination of good processes that align with good, powerful technology. Um, and so I've learned the hard way a couple of times around technology not being in and of itself the solution and sometimes spending more time on how you do things as an organization will be more powerful. And so I'm, I'm lucky enough to have learned those types of things on smaller implementations where we had some you know, flexibility to make some changes and make it right and, and not learning it on, you know, big implementations that could have been career ending. So, but automation, it can take a variety of forms, but I see it as the combination of, you know, those two things, tech and process together. Yeah, I, that's a great marriage between those. If you think of it that way, you're going to actually see some great productivity improvements and, and free up time to do those value-added activities. That's exactly. This is exactly how we think about it. I talked about that finance advisory office earlier. We funded that office through efficiencies that we were finding. And so as we found efficiencies, we would move headcount into that office. And, and really what we're seeing is a, a shift in the talent pool and also what our people are doing. So away from processing into thinking about how to build scale and efficiency and how to use the data in the most powerful way. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, it is very cool. And it's actually, as I go into the next section, report from the future, as we call it, this probably will be the easiest section because everything you've talked about so far has been very, I don't want to say next generation, but certainly forward-looking is the way I'd describe it. So report from the future. This may be... It may be an easy question. It may be one that you actually have a lot of thoughts on. Obviously, the role of CFO has changed. I mean, the CFO is a strategic business partner to the organization, as you've opined on several times already in this conversation. What do you think the future for CFOs looks like? Yeah, I think the sort of evolution of the CFO from just like the numbers person to a strategic advisor has been an important one and has been very impactful to companies as they think about optimizing how they spend their capital. And the pairing of those two things is really powerful. I'm a new CFO, but 
coming in as I think about what I need to do is really to continue to innovate. And we've made great things happen, but those might not be the solutions of tomorrow. So we need to think about what's happening in the world around us, both within our business and to the extent you're in a regulated business, what's happening in regulations. And I need to think about how to move along with that and best support that journey. And so I kind of think the CFO, you know, needs to continue to be a strategic advisor, but really be open to possibility and really forward thinking on how to drive success. Yeah, I like that term forward thinking. I think it describes everything that you're doing at NASDAQ. So uh, maybe my next question is a relatively simple one. For the next set of CFOs, for those that feel like that's the next step in their career journey and are trying to organize their work experience to be ready for that kind of role, what do you suggest for them? What are certain building blocks that you think are absolutely necessary in order to be a successful CFO? If I reflect back on on my journey and the last five years at NASDAQ and why I was selected, I think a few really important things stand out. One is understanding your business. Obviously, when you get to the point where um, you're, you know, could be considered for the role or you're thinking, you know, about taking that path, you've probably got the technical stuff underneath you. But when when selecting a CFO, I imagine every company wants to find one that's going to help, you know, drive the strategic direction of the business. And that has to be, in my view, done from a place of knowledge and a place of collaboration. And so I would suggest there's probably 10 things that should be on the list, but one, having a deep understanding of the businesses that you're working with and on, and then building those relationships with the leaders in those businesses so that it kind of you know creates an easy path for you and you can be really powerful when you step into the seat. That's a wonderful answer, and I think people can... They will be well served to follow that advice. Last question in this section. So fast forward 12 months when we have you on in part two of our podcast conversation. What do you think might have been the biggest topic that we would discuss 12 months from now? Biggest topic. So I can say what I hope we're not talking about COVID-19 anymore or pandemic. So hopefully that will be off the table. What is everybody talking about these days? In my view, two things. One is ESG, and two is the digital asset space. And I think 12 months from now, we'll be talking about those two things. We'll be talking about, from a CFO and a technology perspective, the commercial opportunities in the digital asset space and how cryptocurrency, or maybe less so on the cryptocurrency side, maybe more about the distributed ledgers and how that's sort of changing the world of finance. I think we'll be talking about that, and we'll definitely be talking about ESG. I, I like those predictions, and I hope that in 12 months, uh, I look forward to that because they're fun conversations. All right, now our final section is what we call quick hits. <laughs> so number one, you touched on this a moment ago, digital currencies. What, what do you think is the future of digital currencies for Treasury and finance? So I'm not sure on, on the digital currency side. So. I think I saw this morning J.P. Morgan released some sort of survey that they did to investors where I think roughly half and half say cryptocurrencies are kind of here to stay and the other are not big believers. So I don't have a wallet. 
I kind of wish I did when I thought about doing it about at least uh, 10 years ago. I, I had some thoughts of buying Bitcoin and I, just, I didn't pull the trigger. So that's a big disappointment. So if you step back now and you, and you look at cryptocurrencies and what they're being used for, institutionally, people aren't using them to transact. But you're starting to see big moves, right? You're starting to see the MasterCards, the PayPals of the year com coming out with the ability to use cryptocurrency. So this is a really long answer to um, a short question, but I think they're here to stay. It'll be really fun to watch the evolution of how they're used. Yeah, it'll be very interesting. One factor, I think, just to kind of add to your points, because uh, I very much agree with you. I mean, I have a digital wallet. I have some cryptocurrencies, and yet my views are exactly the same as yours, is that there's a still a lot that needs to happen for mainstream use of cryptocurrencies. And I think the burning question is, will centrally backed, like your CBDCs, will they actually fill that void or will privately issue the Bitcoins, maybe not that one per se, but the Ethereums or other ones like that, will they actually develop the infrastructure, the hedging market, have a bit more liquidity there, have some sort of utility for the currency so it's more transactable, actually have a network that's more scalable. There's a lot of things that we would say see in the fiat currency markets that we don't see in the digital currency markets. 100% agree. Exciting ride. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Yeah, next one. There's been some talk, most of it playful, some of it serious, around this concept of a chief liquidity officer. Do you think there is ever going to be a chief liquidity officer? You know, it's, it's funny. I've seen a couple articles on that. Um, so I don't have a lot of knowledge, so let me just preface it with that. I think if I was to sort of step back, I'd say it depends on the type of company. Certain companies have more complex liquidity issues to manage through, and other companies just have a, a more simple structure. And so I don't know if it's going to be widespread, but I think probably if you looked into some of those complex companies now, particularly the big banks, multiple people that are you know responsible for liquidity and maintaining liquidity, and maybe they don't have the specific title, but they're probably doing the job. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Whatever the title may be, I haven't seen this one yet, but there's possibilities. The job is critical. Agreed. Good point. Agreed. We talked briefly about artificial intelligence. So do you think artificial intelligence will replace people? And maybe I'll even preface that, or maybe that more specific. Will artificial intelligence replace people in finance? In finance. Well, one thing that, you know, is a fantasy of mine, I should say, and this is not related to finance. I don't have a personal home assistant, but I heard like that's a artificial uh, intelligence journey along the way. So I hope one day they replace my non-existent personal assistant and I actually have one. That'd be really cool at home. So I, I can pick up the slack that I'm, of things I'm not doing. On the finance side, look, I think that the finance role is already changing. And I chuckle when I have to sort of sign off on access to systems because I have robot number one, robot number two that are part of my employee pool, non-existent employees, but they didn't replace people. They just changed the nature of the job. I mean, I think over time, you know, the power of finance will increase and the nature of people's jobs um, will change. And we'll have robots doing a lot of things that were process oriented and were done manually before. I don't close my eyes and see the future where there's there's no people. Maybe there's less people, but I think it's a little bit further down the road. 
the fact that it changes the role and makes you more value added and helps you get to those projects that maybe you never had time to get to because you were doing things as opposed to analyzing data. Exactly. And the world's always changing. So we're always going to need good finance people to get that AI and machine learning set up to do the new things. So that's a great answer. A lot of people will like that you said that answer. But all right, last question. Within your industry, do you find CFOs are peers or competitors? Oh, definitely peers. I want to meet as many CFOs as I can and talk to them about what they're experiencing. I've been sort of drinking out of the fire hose, kind of new in the role, and haven't had a chance to do a lot of networking. But to the extent I have, I met a couple of really great CFOs from different industries. And even in just a half-hour conversation, just take away so much. And so definitely peers, unless we're like competing in a race or in a video game or something. I'm just kidding. I don't do either of those things. (laughs) And it's a whole different set of rules. (laughs) (laughs) I like that answer. That's fantastic. Thank you. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time today, Anne. This is a wonderful conversation. I feel like there's a part two and a part three to come, but for today, thank you so much. Thanks, Bob. It was great. Thanks for inviting me. I feel honored and loved having the chat. Thank you for listening to The Invisible Vault. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review, and share it with someone who you think might enjoy it. The Invisible Vault is powered by the team at Kariba, the global leader in cloud treasury and finance solutions, empowering CFOs and their teams to transform how they activate liquidity as a dynamic real-time vehicle for growth and value creation. To learn more, visit www.kariba.com. The creative team behind The Invisible Vault is Bob Stark, Daniel Schaefer, and Dennis Demos, with support from the team at Caspian Studios.